Everybody, welcome to episode 171 of the Rock Show podcast. I'm Rocker Mike. The big guy to my left there is Rob Rossi. Oh, Rob. And today we're talking about uh, the second part of our Willie DeVille uh, podcast. Now, we talked last uh, two weeks ago about uh, everything, basically the Mink DeVille years uh, from 75 to about uh, 86. Yeah, that's um, with the band, right? Right. When he had a band called Mink DeVille, Willie DeVille was a singer, guitar player, songwriter. Uh, basically, he was the band. And in the last few years of his existence, he he really was the band. He had fired all the original singers at that original uh, players at that lineup. point. Right. The original lineup. And uh, he had been recording. Um, things were very well in Europe, doing very well, not quite making it in America. But he wanted to make a change. Okay, so in 1986, he decided to retire the Mink DeVille name and just go by the name of Willie DeVille, which is where we're at today. Um, yep, that's him right there. And um, make Mike, sure, before make, you get started, um, let hmm? me ask you a question. Yeah. So we've been seeing this pattern, as many shows as we've done, we see this pattern that a lot of guys don't make it to the U.S. and then they go to Europe and they're like rock star. It's, it's, it's like I still that still boggles my mind that why does that happen? Is this the taste? It's like they just want Americans there. I don't understand it. What is it? What do you think is that? Um, well, you know, people that um, in America that aren't in the mainstream, okay, mm-hmm. in Europe, the 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 listening the people listening to this stuff, they they like that. Okay, they like these kind of outsider uh, people. Okay, they find them interesting, and they are. Okay, um, also a lot of like someone like Willie who was doing this, you know, different kind of uh, roots American music um, than anybody else was doing at the time. Uh, he wasn't really in sync with popular music or anything like that. In Europe, they like that, and they 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 like roots american music a lot more than we do as americans okay you know stuff like 50 style rockabilly and stuff is is huge in europe especially england france places like that they like that okay uh even now even now 2022 okay there is a uh, a, a large rock and roll scene in places like france okay uh italy 
um, they 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 dress the part, you know. They wear the tight jeans and the, you know, the jackets and you know all that all that stuff. And you know, it's cool, okay. And and they're very, the American musicians are usually well received in Europe if they're doing something different. I find. You know what's the other place that also that happened to them, even though they're not. South America, they love that shit. They eat it up. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. No, I mean if you're into like uh, you know punk rock, heavy metal, things like that, that stuff is huge in South America. You know, I'm from you know you know I'm from Queens, and and I would yeah. see South American you know uh, guys from you know Paraguay or something wearing Ramon shirts in 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 on Roosevelt Avenue, you know, and you talk to them, and, and they they know the band. It's not just a fashion thing. You know, they, 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 you know what's the funny thing <laughs> that always cracked me up? Some of yeah. these guys don't speak a lick of English, but they can sing a whole remote song. Sing a whole song. <laughs> yep. Figure that out. <laughs> but it, it goes back to what you're saying, Rob. You know, these guys, they they, they go to Europe and they, they make their money there. <clears throat> Mentioning the Ramones, I mean, the last few years of the Ramones' existence, they made a fortune touring South America. Wow. I mean, more than they ever made anywhere else. They would do – they would – Fill soccer stadiums, fifty thousand people. Okay, right. That's yeah, and, and, and here they're playing clubs, you know. Yeah. So get that out, okay. But um, getting back to Willie, in nineteen eighty seven, he started uh, recording and touring under his name, Willie Deville. Yeah. Uh, Mick Deville was totally put to rest. He began at that point a collaboration, which would be probably his most successful. With Mark Knopfler of the Di of Dire Straits, okay, okay, the result was an album by Willie Deville called Miracle, uh, produced in London by Mark Knopfler. The collaboration was the brainchild of Knopfler's wife. Uh, her name is Lourdes. Uh, she was very aware that uh, Mark was a fan, okay, and suggested, you know, you should do an album with him. So the album was a collection of kind of leftover songs that Willie had gone back to over the years. Um, nothing that he had recorded before, just stuff that was lying around. Um, one new track was called Spanish Jack, and it was co-written by Mark Knopfler. That was a new one. Uh, but the album closer, the last song on the album, was a song called Storybook Love. And it would become one of Willie's most well-known songs, because it became the theme to the successful movie, The Princess Bride. Yes, it did. And it was nominated for an Academy Award. And Willie got to perform it at the Oscars. Okay. That's huge. Yeah. Now, um, you know, what, what, what we may not realize is there's the Grammys. And that's great. It's great to win a Grammy. Okay. But if your song is nominated for an Oscar, it's even higher. Yeah. Higher yeah. honor. So it was a very big deal for him. He was very moved that he was asked to perform. Uh, unfortunately, he didn't win anything because Dirty Dancing took everything that year. Okay, but uh, it was still great exposure for Willie DeVille, um, especially at that point in his career where he was really trying to go off as just a solo musician. Now, yeah, in 88... When you, do that, when you hit the Academy Award, you're also reaching like a whole new audience and people that never knew who the hell you were and now you're like exactly. in front of all these people exactly that's what i mean by exposure okay you know yeah. the exposure that he got 
And in those days, it isn't like now where the Oscars get low ratings. Okay. In those days, 88, 1988, everybody was watching the Oscars, even everybody. me. I don't even, I don't even watch no more, you know, but everybody did back then. The whole world was watching really. So he got to perform that with Mark Knopfler on the, on the Academy Awards. It was a big moment. Um, in 1988, though, Willie would move from New York City down to New Orleans. Uh, he found it now as kind of his spiritual home. Uh, he was very just intrigued by the city uh, and decided to move there, moved into the French Quarter. He immersed himself into the whole culture of the city, uh, the Creole culture in particular. Um, now, after about two years of doing that, kind of absorbing the city, um, he would release a tribute album of New Orleans music called Victory Mixture. Victory Mixture. Um, it was basically a mix of soul and R&B and everything that the city had to offer in that genre, jazz influences. Uh, the album was recorded using no overdubs at all totally live okay um they basically were recording old traditional new orleans songs uh in the way that it was recorded years ago they didn't do any overdubs it was just live whatever take oh, wow. they good you know that was what they would use they didn't just they didn't fix anything um <clears throat> victory mixture was released on the indie label orleans records Okay, uh, which released it also to FNAC Records in France. It went gold, selling over 100,000 copies in Europe uh, pretty quickly. Okay, um, Carlo Ditta, who was the producer of the album and founder of Orleans Records, was very proud of that. That was the biggest thing he had ever put out. Um, now, in the summer of 1992, DeVille toured Europe with Dr. John, Johnny Adams, Zachary Richard, and the Wild Magnolias as part of his New Orleans Review tour. Okay. Um, <clears throat> one guy at this time, unfortunately, who they would cross paths with would be Johnny Thunders in New Orleans. Do you remember the story? Yeah. Okay. Thunders went down to New Orleans. Well, I wouldn't say they crossed paths because Willie, the story goes, is Willie didn't even know he was in town. But Willie lived up the street from the St. Peter Inn where Johnny Thunders had died. And, uh, you know, he became part of the, the story, uh, you know, that he saw him come out, you know, being brought out, his body being brought out. He didn't even know he was in town. But, but Thunders was there to, you know, make a name for himself in the New Orleans scene. And Willie was just starting to really do that. So uh, these guys knew each other. So I'm sure Willie might have been on Johnny's mind to contact about being in a band or getting something going. Um, yeah. I'm just I'm just assuming. I don't know if that's true, but it seems like knowing that, that 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 might be the case, knowing they were part of the New York scene and both being down there. Um, well, one of them would have reached out to the other one if they knew they were there. You know, they probably yeah. would have been like, hey, yo, I'm Yeah, I'm sure if Thunders had lived, Willie would have known and reached out to him and say, hey, do some shows together or something. Yep. You know? Wow. Uh, now, the tour, the New Orleans Review Tour that Willie was on in 92 – uh, was very grueling. Um, touring in Europe, especially in those days, was very difficult. It's not much better now from what I understand. They don't have like four-star hotels. They don't have places like that. 
Okay. You know, you stay in like little inns and bed and breakfast type things. And, you know, you're lucky sometimes you don't have hot water, things like that, you know? So, uh, but despite it being a grueling tour, it was very successful. Uh, at the end of every show, the band would throw out Mardi Gras beads into the audience. And uh, that was something that nobody had ever seen before in Europe. So they, they really liked that. Now, in also in 1992, DeVille recorded Backstreets of Desire. The first of four albums he would record in Los Angeles with producer John Philip Chanelli. Uh Willie hated Los Angeles with a passion. He hated being there. He hated recording there. But New Orleans had a lack of good recording studios. So he would end up going out to L.A. to record. Uh, but when he did, he often never left the hotel room other than to record. He, just, he didn't like the city. Um, for Backstreets of Desire, he was joined by David Hidalgo of Los Lobos, Efren Toro, uh, Mariachi Los Camparos, and Jimmy Zavala. They were a great lineup of, of Latin artists from L.A. Dr. John played piano on that album, and a Zydeco artist, Zydeco is a type of New Orleans music, uh, artist Zachary Richard, along with L.A. Session guys, Jeff Baxter, Freebo, Jim Gilstrap, and Brian Ray would round out the clientele for this album. The yeah, album is considered strange. I never realized how much Dr. John played with Willie DeVille. Yeah. Dr. Yeah. John never. He was very good friends with him. Very good friends. So with you him. just call him up and hey, can you play? He was playing the piano, I guess, all the time. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's what he's known for, okay? And, 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 you know, Dr. John, who had his own career, you know, he would take time off yeah. from that to Willie. So that's a big, you know, it's a big thing. That's what um, I'm thinking. That's huge. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, and, it's, and of course, now, now you're down in Dr. John's town, okay? Yeah. So he's going he's gonna to turn you on to everything down there, which he did. Yeah. You know, now, this album um, called uh, Backstreets of Desire – it's considered one of Willie's best. Uh, it's a roots rock and roll, doo-wop, Crescent City-influenced kind of thing. Uh, it has some Spanish soul mixed in there with the artists that he was playing with. There's a mariachi version of the Jimi Hendrix-made famous song, Hey Joe. Okay, uh, That was a hit in Europe and went to number one, actually, in Spain and France, that version of Hey Joe. Backstreets of Desire was released in the U.S. in 1994 on Rhino Records' Forward label. Now, back in 1984, before the, the move to New Orleans, Willie married his second wife, Lisa Leggett. Now, he had divorced toots at that point. Uh, Lisa became his manager, and on the strength of his successful tours and European selling albums, they were able to buy a horse farm in wow. Picayune, uh, Mississippi. And they would split their time between the French Quarter in New Orleans and the farm in Mississippi. Now, Lisa also got into horse breeding. But through the mid-90s, Willie didn't have an American record contract. He would release Willie DeVille Live in 1993 and Big Easy Fantasy in 1995, <clears throat> both for the French label FNAC. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the live album there went to number one in Spain. Big Easy Fantasy was some live recordings of the Mink DeVille band playing with New Orleans legends Eddie Bowe and the Wild Magnolias. 
It also features some remixes of tracks from Victory Mixture. So he used some older tracks when Mink DeVille still existed and yeah. everything. It's kind of a mishmash, but it's a good album. Um, in 95, Willie would return to L.A. to record Loop Guru, one of my personal favorites, uh, once again with producer John Philip Chanali. The title in French means werewolf, Loop Guru. Uh, the album continued with experiments in mariachi, Cajun style, okay, and mixed with rock and roll. Um, a highlight of the album and also a personal highlight for Willie was the duet You'll Never Know he did with Brenda Lee. The album also delved into country with the track No Such Pain as Love. Uh, the track Still I Love You Still was shot as a video in New Orleans, uh, New Orleans Preservation Hall to be exact, which is like the oldest jazz club in the, in the country. Okay, it's over 100 years. Uh, the album cover was a photo of Willie DeVille standing in front of Jean Lafitte's blacksmith shop, said to be the oldest bar in the U.S. on the corner of Bourbon and St. Philip Street. But the title track, Loop Guru, with its tribal voodoo drums, showed just how immersed in New Orleans culture Willie was, probably thanks to Dr. John as well. Yep, that's that's where it is. Uh no, with the Willie DeVille acoustic trio. Nope, different record, but very similar album. Loop Guru. Yeah. Uh, but, then, you know, things would soon change now at this point. Uh, in 1999, before a major move to the American Southwest, he would record the album Horse of a Different Color in Memphis. Produced by Jim Dickinson, which included the Chain Gang song, a cover of Fred McDowell's Going Over the Hill, and a cover of Andre Williams' Bacon Fat. This record was the first since 1987's Miracle that got simultaneously released in America and Europe. So finally, he's got an American record contract. Yeah. Now, by the year 2000, DeVille had cured himself of his 20-year heroin addiction. Wow. He, re he relocated to Gorillas, Gorillos Hills, New Mexico where he would produce and play on an album called Blue Love Monkey with Rick Naffy. Naffy was a friend from his youth time in Connecticut and had played in his first band, Billy and the Kids, as well as the Royal Pythons. He was in that as well. In New Mexico, Willie's second wife, Lisa, committed suicide. Uh, she hung herself. And he actually found her, which is horrible. Okay. Uh, this was the beginning of a very turbulent time in his life. Um, he began to really decline health-wise after this. Um, he walked with a cane because the years of addiction had messed with his hip bones and stuff, and he needed a hip replacement surgery, which wouldn't happen until about 2006. So he walked with a cane for a while, and he would sometimes uh, perform sitting on a, a bar stool on stage. Okay. Uh, his arrival into the Southwest really piqued an interest in his Native American heritage. Uh, on the cover of the next album, 2002's Acoustic Trio Live in Berlin, recorded to celebrate his 25 years of performing, DeVille wore his hair long, and he began to wear Native American jewelry on stage. Yeah, uh, yeah around that time, he uh, was wearing like jewelry and stuff, and there's others with he's got more beads on and things like that. Um, in 2004, 
DeVille returned to Los Angeles to record the album Crow Jane Alley. Uh, it was his third album with producer John Philip Chanelli. The album continued his explorations of Spanish-American sounds and featured many Los Angeles Latino musicians once again. Uh, on the album cover, Willie wore Native American headdress and breastplate. This album featured the dark track Downside of Town, where Willie sings a lyric about cutting her down, which is a clear reference to his late wife's suicide. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's a strong record full of self-reflection, remorse, love, and optimism. Uh, Shiva, uh, I'm sorry, not Shiva, Chiva, excuse me, Chiva, is a track about his heroin addiction. Okay. Uh, he covers brilliantly Brian Ferry's Slave to Love, and Jay and the Americans come a little bit closer. I think that Brian Ferry version is better than Brian Ferry, to be honest with you. Wow. Uh, not one of my favorite songs of all time, but but the way Willie does it, it's pretty damn good. Um, now, after three years in New Mexico, Willie DeVille moved back to New York City in 2003. Uh, he would marry Nina Legawall. She was his third wife. Uh, he continued touring Europe, usually playing music festivals in the summer. On Mardi Gras Day in 2008, Willie released his 16th album called Pistola which proved to be another album of honesty and self-reflection. Uh, hey, Willie DeVille... Pistola means, right? Pistol? Yeah, pistol. Pistol, yeah. Uh, that would prove to be another you know, self-reflective album. Uh, he was still confronting his demons at that point. John Philip Shinali produced the album and once again was recorded in Los Angeles. Critically, Pistola was well-received. Uh, many consider it to be his best I would put it up there in that. Uh, sadly, it would be his last record. Wow. In February 2009, Willie DeVille was diagnosed with hepatitis C uh, due to his years of heroin addiction, I'm sure. And in May of that year, discovered pancreatic cancer. They, you know, The doctors discovered it while they were treating him for hep C. Uh, pancreatic cancer, especially in those days, was uncurable pretty much uh he would pass away in new york city in the late hours of august 6th 2009 three weeks shy of his 59th birthday um he had moved back to new york in that that last like you know couple of years um and you know sadly died in the in the city that he loved and where he got started yeah yeah Okay, so now would be a good time to introduce our guest, Donna Destry. Let's bring her on, talk a little bit about Willie DeVille. Welcome, everybody, to the uh, second part of our Willie DeVille episode. Um, tonight, we have the special guest, Donna Destry. How you doing, Donna? I'm great, thanks. Okay. She's an authority on Willie, uh, somewhat. She lived through the period and uh, saw him many times. Uh, you might know Donna from uh, a bunch of Danny Garcia movies that are out there now. Yeah, it is. Willie. Willie again. <laughs> wow. And uh, Donna has done uh, most recently the uh, nightclubbing, The Birth of Punk in New York, which you can get on Amazon now uh, as on, DV on DVD. And uh, hopefully by the time this is aired, uh, maybe even streaming as well. So take a look at that. It's a great movie. Um, Donna, now... I met you at the screening for, for the for the movie at Coney Island, okay, at the Coney Island Festival. 
And uh, you said something very interesting that really just it, it intrigued me because I've been trying to get something going on a Willie DeVille show for a while. Um, you said that you thought that Willie really should have been so much bigger than what he was. Yeah, I always thought that. Yeah. Well, why, why do you feel that way? Well, I don't know. Like The first time I saw them, it was, you know, it was life-changing he was magical on stage and not only him but the musicians were i'm not saying that people couldn't play during that time because there were a lot of fine musicians don't get me wrong right these guys were awesome they were the real deal you know and when willie came out with his purple shirt and his skinny tie and it was bernardo west side story there he was you know right bonafide. he yeah. was the coolest guy i had ever seen and that band was just smoking they every song on that first album was great i mean every song every song so you know bands like the b-52s and blondie and talking heads they all did very very well and in my opinion Humble as it may be, I think Mink DeVille were the band of that time. Wow. Now, you saw them mostly at Max's, I'm assuming? I saw them at Mother's. I saw them at CBGB's. I mm -hmm. saw them at Max's. I went to see them whenever I could. Wow. How many times do you think you saw them? Oh, God. Uh, probably every show. <laughs> <laughs> almost every show yeah yeah that that um that first album cabretta is oh is always it's always on my playlist there's a track from it somewhere all the time it's just so good i mean yeah. just such great tracks and you yes. know what floored me more than anything about him was the voice you know the soul and his voice mm -hmm. was just just amazing he was very unique in that in that period during considering, that time yeah, yeah he was because we had all these punk bands like the ramones and you know the testers and all those you know punky bands and then you had like uh, party bands like b-52s and blondie with their little pop songs and here was this r&b soul singer i mean he was just so moving it was, it was amazing. He was amazing. Now, guys like, um, uh, I mean, the other bands, maybe, you know, the Ramones or even like Johnny Thunders, you know, what, what, what did they think of Willie? Okay. I was with Jerry Nolan one night at Mother's and he said to me, I think that might have been the first time I ever saw Mink DeVille. I'm not sure. I don't remember. Right. My memory's kind of sketchy. But well, I mother's was mother's was probably early because yeah. it was gone after a while, right? Yes. Yeah. And I remember Jerry Nolan saying to me, "Watch this guy. Just watch this guy. He's the coolest." Like they idolized him. Yeah. You know, all the heartbreakers were there, and they watched Willie. They idolized him. But I remember, you know, seeing Willie and thinking. The same thing I thought when I first saw Debbie Harry was like, this girl's going to be a star, you know? And I just thought that about Willie. And just so disappointing that they they had to go to Europe to, you know, to get famous. It, it just, I never understood it. I really never understood I, it. I said something, I think it was in the first part of our series uh, this month on it. Um, I don't know, maybe this is controversial, but I'm going to just get your opinion on it. I, I kind of thought that I always think that he's kind of like what Bruce Springsteen always wanted to be. 
Oh, I think Bruce Springsteen probably took a lot from Willie DeVille. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, Springsteen was paying attention to what was going on in those days and he did check out the scene. So I'm sure he did, but I always felt like, you know, not, not a big shot at Bruce, but I mean, it's like the, the, the roots American, American roots music that Willie was doing. Uh, he was drawing back from the nine, you know, the early sixties, mm -hmm. uh, but putting a, a a modern twist on it and and just having this incredible backup band i just think he you know he blew away almost everything springsteen did at that time <laughs> to be well, honest <laughs> i know it's going to sound sacrilegious but i'm not a huge springsteen fan no i'm I, i'm not either you know i know people Me. love him but yeah I, yeah you know so what <laughs> All right, so we'll, we'll crap on him a little bit. Yeah, I just think he—he's he, kind of like everything that Bruce wanted to be, you know, and just never achieved. Yeah, you know, but, you and, know, he, even through all his incarnations, he just got—he kept getting better and better, you know, and doing more experimenting and doing more different things. Like I love the Cajun things he did, and yeah, he—he had like three periods basically, like the, you know, the Bernardo West Side Story look. Okay, that, that you love. And then he had this kind of like he, he moved down in New Orleans. He had this like voodoo Creole kind of influence going on. He was playing more with Dr. John and oh, getting immersed yeah. into that. Oh, and yeah. then he has that Southwest Native American period where he's wearing a, a you know, a, a mohawk basically. Uh -huh. Yeah. That. <laughs> but when he's in that, you know, that ruffle kind of shirt, um, you know, French Cajun look. Uh, yeah. Are you familiar with Anne Rice books at all? Oh, yeah, sure. I, Definitely. I always thought, you know, she did that whole series about the witches. I always mm -hmm. thought Will, Willie would be perfect to play like Uncle Justin, you know? Yes. The witchy ghost. <laughs> yes. You know, yes. Yeah. yeah I, right. I, like the cover of um, the cover of Loop Guru. Yes. When he's he's right on St. Peter Street. I think I think he lived right there. And uh and uh, you know, he's wearing like the the long coat and the hat, and then you know, and that's he, fantastic. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. They're such a style icon, too. You know, and I always say they never gave Johnny Dunders credit for that either. It's always about the drugs, and they never, you know, give these guys credit for their incredible style. Yeah, yeah, and and also, you you know, you mentioned mentioning Johnny. I mean, it, it, it's it's interesting how you know Johnny unfortunately passed away in new orleans and 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 willie was right there practically down the block living and he didn't even know he was in town yeah. and you know you think like the big what if you know what if they could get it together and actually maybe even i don't know if they were going to perform together but it would have been cool if they could have done something like that it you know? been great. yeah it yeah i mean because i think johnny was looking to change his sound be more bluesy and and he was, you know, in the perfect place to do that. If he could have connected with Willie, that would have been amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, Willie has this uh, this very brief period where he, he, he almost breaks through in the United States. I'm talking about when he got involved with Mark Knopfler. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, the Academy he gets, Awards song. Yeah, he gets to perform on the Oscars. And, 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 you know, that's probably the most exposure you ever had in the United States, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's you too know, bad. It's very sad. It's a very sad thing, you know, that people have to go to Europe to, you know, for them to be recognized, you know? Like, it, it happened with Robert Frost. He was never... 
famous in this country. Had to go to mm -hmm. England, and you know, mm -hmm. I never quite. Why, why do you, Why do you think that is? You know, because we find that happens so much with people we talk about, especially especially more underground people. You know, why do you think that is that Americans just don't pick up on that? Well, I think, you know, it's easier to break through in Europe because, you know, look at the BBC. What are there, three radio stations? It's much smaller area. You know, mm. here it's so diverse and the country's so big. True. And, you yeah. know, I, I think it's easier over there. But um, I, I, I believe that. But I think it's also there's a little percentage of it that is they're more accepting they're more of open. people. Yeah, more, more open to new kinds of music, musical sounds, styles, people that I think that they like something that's considered like almost like a rebellious or an outlaw kind of image from here. You know, yeah. well, they, you know, especially in, in England, they love all things New York, you know. Yeah. The last time I was in London, I went through Camden Market and they're playing the New York Dolls like out in the street. It was, it was crazy, <laughs> you know, they, yeah. they love all things New York. That's true. So, you know, I, an American. So. I also think that the European got better taste in music than a lot of Americans. They probably you know, do. They accept the music. They probably do. You know? I mean, Willie, Willie was top 40 in France. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You know, and, and, and I've, I've got friends on Facebook that when they heard I was doing this, they were very happy they're from France. And they're like, you know, we, we, we look at him as like a, a hero. You know, he even even today, Japan, right? He he, I think he Japan. played there. He, I think I think he did play there maybe once or twice. I don't think he really got there too much. They will love him too because Japan loves anything American. Like anything, like, oh. Japan, they love everything. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's very difficult. It's very difficult for non-mainstream artists to do an Asian tour. It's it, it's it's very hard to get to Japan if you if you haven't actually. You know, if you don't have a lot of backing, you know, and I mean, there was a point where Willie was in the early 80s. He was just he, he was still using the Mink DeVille name, but it was really just him. Yeah. And uh, he had a lot of he would just do, you know, grab up whatever musicians he could, wherever he could. But he always found really top music. Yes. He always found you're going to say that. Yeah. Really this. good players. You know, they were like really good session guys. They weren't they were no joke. Yeah. You know, there were no joke, but um, yeah, he's he it's a sad story about him, you know. I, I just I never understood it. I Did you get to know him at all, or just no, really from afar? You know, I just kind of well, <laughs> you know, I, I'm not gonna lie, I had a huge crush on him, but Toots was kind of figured that <laughs> <laughs> she was never far away, you know, you just did yeah. not get near Willie. And and it's funny wow. because. When I first got on Facebook, I made friends with Manfred, the drummer, you know, yes. and he he would laugh about it. And he would say, oh, Willie would have loved you, but you could never get past her. You know, she was always looming close by and she was one scary character. We're, we're talking about Toots, right? Toots, yeah. yeah. Toots was always <laughs> hovering. You know? She was the gatekeeper. Oh, my God. You know, she was one of those like 19 kind of 50s looking girls, the ones who had razor blades in their hair. You know, you just didn't go near her. <laughs> she she if you look at old pictures of her, she's kind of got like, you know, an Amy Winehouse kind of look with a big bouffant. She's very yeah. cool. I mean, oh, yeah. No, she looked very cool. I wonder if Amy Winehouse even knew who she was. <laughs> she probably did. <laughs> yeah, you, you never just, know. You never got close to Willie. You never you never went there.
Yeah. Yeah. Um, were you in the circle at all? Like when he passed away? Cause he did die in New York city. No, um, no. you know, about that time I was, you know, I had a kid, I was home. I wasn't really, mm -hmm. you know, I, I stopped my going out in the early eighties because, you know, I got married, I had a child, so I wasn't really in the loop. Yeah. By 2009, that's when he passed. Yeah. Yeah. That's you know, a story. But okay, uh, yeah, by the eighties, I was like, not going to, you know, it's funny in New York because you had Max's, you had CBGB's, even mothers, those places were like neighborhood pubs. You can go out any night. I, I never felt weird going into Max's or CBGB's alone because there would always be somebody I knew. But then in the early eighties, those big clubs came like hurrah and the Rancateria, all that in the mm. whole scene completely changed. Yeah. And, and completely changed. I, I missed I missed your scene by a few years. I came around 83, 84 onto okay. the scene. And you know, you're right. It was it was those big clubs. It was the Ritz. The Ritz, Harari, you know, yeah. you know, CB's had CB's managed to hold on for a long time. Yeah. Um and I admit I, you know, I lived there for a while in the eighties practically, you know, hardcore shows and things like that I was really into. Yeah. Um but you know, even going back to then, I mean, I I I knew, and I heard because I hung out with a lot of older people, and I heard about ten years earlier what was going on, you know, and uh, it, oh, it's it, incredible. Yeah, I mean, the history of it all, you know, it's amazing. Yeah, you'd walk from Max's to CBGB's and back again, and go see this band, and walk to, you know, walk back and see another band. It, it was nuts, you know. So, Did you work at Max's, Donna? I worked at Max's, yeah. I worked at Max's wow. funny, in the daytime in the restaurant downstairs. Okay, you weren't upstairs. Which was a whole different scene, you know? It was like a businessman lunch. And I'd go home, change my clothes, and go back and go upstairs and hang out. <laughs> it was funny. Wow. I had my meals there. I mean, it was great. <laughs> yeah, you must have seen a lot. Oh, yeah. Every yeah. band that went in there, you know? We mm -hmm. got to meet every band that went in there because they'd come through the restaurant. Tommy and Laura Dean would put a buffet out for the bands and, you know, we'd hang out. It was very, very fun time. Yeah. Were you, but, were you uh, there Willie, I never got Sid Vicious? <laughs> Sid Vicious? We, we, yeah, what did you say, Rob? Sid Vicious played? Yeah. Wow. Yep. What did you, you think of the performance? Well, um... I, you know, I'm not a fan. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I could say. No, I, and I, I get that. But, you know, when, when we were at the premiere, uh, the, the first premiere, uh, you, you weren't at that. Um, Danny played the, uh, the Sid Vicious, you know, short Sid Vicious documentary that he put together about the last, yeah. the very I last show. I mean, they didn't sound bad, you know. I'll be honest with you. I, I mean, I, I grew up with those, you know, Sid Sings, that record, and, you know, a couple of the other bootlegs. And that, what Danny had was the best I'd ever heard. In, yeah, it didn't sound bad. Ever. I, I'm, I just never liked him um, personally. But know? he was a mess. I, you know, let's tell it like it is. He, You know, he was a mess. Yeah, I, I didn't like him personally. He was a yeah. piece of work, as far as I'm concerned. Um, so that kind of taints my feeling about his music. Sure. You know? Definitely. Now, w w getting back to Willie for one minute, 
um, and how he kind of was different than everybody else. How do you think he felt about maybe the bands around him? Like he didn't want to get lumped in with them, right? Oh, no. I, I love that line that he said. Uh, they call me a punk. A punk is somebody who picks a fight and doesn't show up. <laughs> 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 I, I, I'll never forget that line. Uh, but, Johnny uh, Thunders felt the same way. He didn't. He didn't want to be lumped he didn't in with want that. To be called a punk. They didn't want to be. A, they didn't well, want but, to be punks. The, con know? the connotation wasn't good. You know, no, it didn't mean it didn't no. mean what they were trying to say it meant. You know. No, I. You know, not knowing him personally, but knowing Manfred, and I think they wanted to be a step above that, and they certainly were. You know, yeah. they certainly weren't a three chord wonder band, you know. Yeah, I'm hoping that uh, some record company is going to do something with with Willie. OK, because like release, re-release, put out. There's got to be material out there. that's never been released or, or, or definitely remaster things. Yeah. You well, know, what about this documentary? I mean, I'm, I'd be interested to see. The documentary that they I, I've heard there's something I don't know the details on it what do you yeah. know about it yeah I don't know much I know mm -hmm. it's in the it's in the works or I don't know if it's in the can but you know there's certainly interesting things about his personal life you know yeah. wow. he had a lot of tragedy I he mean other, tragedy. other than kills herself right he found her hanging and 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 yeah. all that and had to deal with that yeah. and then of course you know we're talking about toots and yeah, but even, even, even before that, Donna, you know, even like the life he had as a teenager, okay, he was growing up in, in Connecticut, Stanford, Connecticut, which it w was kind of a tough place. Yeah. And, you know, he didn't fit in. He, he, he wasn't into the whole 60s counterculture thing. You know, he wasn't a hippie. He was he was listening to the drifters when that stuff up, was absolutely, yeah, yeah. when that stuff was old already. Yeah. Yep. You know, and and he was attracted to New York City, which probably led to, you know, bad habits. But he would, you know, and he got it. And, and, and he, he seemed to have one thing. And of course, I didn't know him. You didn't know him. But he always seemed to have this drive to keep going despite these things. Yeah. Um, he had a bad music. He always created great music you know yeah yeah i mean he had a bad heroin habit which he eventually would would be by a by the turn of the, the like around the two year 2000 or so okay that was epidemic back then oh yeah no heroin so many people was, heroin use was insane at that time you know yeah yeah luckily yeah. he he you know he got out of that yeah and he managed to make some incredible albums even after that, you know. So it really, his whole thing wasn't wasn't about drugs at all. It was just something that he he got hooked into. But this drive that he had to keep going, and and he didn't always have an American record deal, you know. He was he always had the the European one, and then sometimes uh, I think it's with um, the uh, the third record, Le, Le Chat Blue. Okay. Beautiful record. Right. Beautiful record. Uh, it gets released. He's with Capital. Mm -hmm. It gets released in France only because he added an accordion player to the band and they felt they couldn't market it, that no one would listen to that. <laughs> Crazy. Right. So, I mean, this is the kind of crap that you got to put up with, with record companies. But, but then it gets released in France and other places in Europe, does very well. 
It's selling as an import in America, and it's doing fantastic as an import. So people are paying more for it. I used to buy imports. It would cost $30 sometimes, and this was 35 years ago, you know. But just just to just to show, I mean, he, he really, you know, he had a following. And, don't, you you know, miss, don't you miss buying albums? I do. Liner notes and vinyl. Yep, and I do. I still buy. I mean, vinyl's out there. I, I buy it. Okay. Uh, it's, it's, to be honest with you, the, the quality of the vinyl right now is about as best as I've ever seen it. Yeah. Okay. You know, the, 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 the sound and the physical quality of it. I don't know. In the sixties, the, the vinyl was very heavy. Mm. You know, I have like old stones records from like my dad, like, like beggars banquet. You couldn't break this thing if you tried. Okay. (laughs) Okay. And then by the eighties, they got flimsy. And mm-hmm. a lot of people never really think about it, but it had to do with like less oil in the world. Okay. Cause it all comes from petroleum. Right. Yeah, yeah. So now, cause you got a lot of oil. Okay. The, the, the vinyl they're making, it's like this 180 gram and they advertise it like that, that, you know, buy, buy, uh, you know, the cramped psychedelic jungle on 180, on 180 gram, <laughs> you know? And but the pro- the problem is is they charge a lot for these records now. They're charging oh, like yes, forty bucks. Yeah, I could imagine. easily forty bucks. But there's nothing like the putting the needle down and hearing no. that first crackle on vinyl. It's that first crackle, you, yeah. you maybe there's a poster inside. You got the yeah. lyric sheet. You, there's nothing like that. Uh, kids today, they don't know what they're missing. I you know, know. Like, they didn't have that. DVDs anymore. Everything is digital. You know, everything. Yeah, is- that's that's not how I roll. I don't uh. I don't do any of that stuff, downloading, none of that. I don't do any of that. But you guys want to hear something interesting? This year, vinyl and CD actually went up. Really? The most I heard vinyls that. were sold, and CD was the second thing most sold. Like, they haven't done this in a while, so people are trying to get, like, players again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they sell they sell record players in Bed Bath & Beyond. I've, I've, yeah. I've seen it. You know, That's people, so you know, little suitcase ones like you had when you were a kid, yeah. you know, like little, little ones. The top, yeah. Uh-huh. Just like that. Just That's like hilarious. that. Yep. Yep. And they, you know, they work. And uh, also another good stat that's out there, I think for the last few years, maybe last five years or so, uh, old music actually sells more than new music. Really? Yes. Now, if that's not a, a statement as to the state of things, I don't know what a is. New, a lot of new music is shit. I mean, well, <laughs> everybody crazy. knows it because they're buying the old stuff. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's not much out there that's really great these days. So, yeah. No. There's, there's nobody that can fill Willie's shoes. I don't hear anybody yeah. doing anything what he's doing, what he did, you know? That, that voice is just, there's, there'll never be another one like it. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's up there with James Brown and, you know, like that, mm-hmm. kind of, that kind of vibe. Awesome Wilson Pickett, like that. Kind yeah. of- and, and you know, if if he was here with us, he'd say thank you because that was that was what he was looking to sound like. Yeah, and he did. You know, and he did. He pulled it off. And that's not easy to do. Yeah. You know, got to love, got to love. Definitely. <laughs> God, I want to thank you for coming on. It was fantastic. Uh, Thank you for fun. taking time out of your evening and talking to us about the great Willie DeVille. Yeah, and uh, you have yourself, uh, you know, a great rest of your month or week or whatever you're doing. You too. All right. All right. And we'll be in touch. Okay. Okay. Good night, guys. Good night. Have a good one.
Thank you, everybody, for watching the two-part episode on Willie DeVille and Mink DeVille. Um, I want to thank special guest Donna Destry. She was fantastic. Uh, she gave us some great information. And uh, as usual, she did it so well. She's known for some great documentaries out there by Danny Garcia. Look for Nightclubbing. Okay, I mentioned it earlier. It's, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, and also, it should be streaming by this point, I think. Um, Nightclubbing, The Birth of Punk Rock in New York. Um, if you're looking for me, you could find me all over social media. I'm rocker Mike 212 on Instagram. I'm rocker Mike 212 on Twitter. I am Rocko Mike, Rocko Mike on Facebook. And of course, there's the Facebook group we have called the Rock Show Podcast group page related to this podcast. I'm on Getter, I'm on Truth Social, I'm on MeWe, I'm on Parlor, all under Rocker Mike. How about you, Rob? Where, where can we find you? You can find me on any uh, social media outlet, uh, Twitter, Instagram, um, Facebook, pretty much on a multiple platform. That's pretty much the ones that I hit that I'm most active on. And you can also find us in the Rock, uh, the rock Show uh, group page, which is um, mm -hmm. 1,600 strong and getting bigger and bigger. We got to invite people all the time. That's a place where you can discuss anything music, nothing else, no politics or nothing. We just discuss and, music. And the, and the um, podcasts are there. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, Mike put the song of the day on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, so he's always uh, putting some song of the day early in the morning so you can check it out. Sometimes he put the song of the night, so it depends on what day of the week and, and what we're doing because we're also running around like crazy people. <laughs> yes, a bunch of savages out there. So, thank you for uh, watching the show. Please subscribe to the channel. We got 3,000 subscribers with World Stronger every week. We gain more and more subscribers. So, thank you for watching us because uh, this is pretty much uh, it's hard work researching, getting the guests, getting the people to come. So, support the show by uh, giving us a nice um, subscription there on YouTube. All right. Hit like and subscribe. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you for the 3,000 subscribers. It was, uh, you know, it's like a big milestone. You know? Yeah, so it's yeah we, hit that, we hit that over the last few months. That's great. Yeah, that's great. So let's see what happened. So in that, Mike, what do we say? We always say it. Don't get drunk. Get lumped up. Take care, people. See, see you next week. Yep. <laughs>